Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Promising to deliver a better and fairer country for our grandchildren, Mario Draghi last week eased himself into one of the hottest seats in European politics, that of Italian Prime Minister. The former European Central Bank chief faces a daunting task in leading Italy out of the twin challenges posed by the coronavirus crisis and a related economic slump. But hopes are high in Brussels and in other European capitals that Super Mario is the right person at the right time to bring about a turn in the fortunes of the European Union's third largest economy. Are his admirers expecting too much, however, from the latest technocrat to be appointed to head an Italian government? That's one of the questions I'll be putting to our Europe correspondent, Naomi O'Leary. Later, we'll hear why many people in Texas are facing enormous energy bills this week after the usually balmy state was hit with a brutal winter storm. But first, it's to Italy, and Naomi O'Leary, our Europe correspondent, joins me now. Naomi, just how enthused is the political establishment in Brussels over the appointment of Mario Draghi as Italy's Prime Minister? Is this viewed as a potential turning point for Italy? Yeah, there's high excitement. I think it's fair to say um, Mario Draghi is a very respected figure in EU circles because when he was head of the European Central Bank, he's credited with saving the euro. Um, He used three words in a speech in uh, 2012. There's another message that I want to tell you today. Which apparently he just jotted into the margins just before giving the speech and surprised everyone. The ECB is ready to do whatever it takes to preserve the euro. And those words were whatever it takes. And believe me, it will be enough. And that's seen as a turning point in the uh, debt crisis that was threatening to tear the eurozone apart back then. Um, So he's got a huge respect. He also kind of, he has a reputation for having gravitas. Um, People listen to him when he speaks, um, when he's in like key meetings of EU leaders and so on. Um, and also, you know, his his views are very much in line with those of at the at the center of the EU. So one of the big sort of anxieties that there was is that Italy is due to get the largest chunk of EU recovery funds, and there's a lot of concern about whether that money would be well spent. But now that Mario Draghi has taken over as prime minister, there's very high hopes that he will design a program that will spend the money wisely in a way that, um, you know, Brussels could hope for, I suppose. Now, before we get into discussing whether the, the hopes invested in Draghi are realistic or not, his appointment came about so suddenly, it might be worth recapping briefly on what went wrong for his predecessor, Giuseppe Conti, because he seemed to be doing quite well in the role. Yeah, as a minor coalition partner pulled out, essentially, um, Matteo Renzi, who's a centre-left figure, a former prime minister indeed, who, from what I can see, decided to regain political momentum for himself by making himself a topic of conversation, withdrawing his support and causing the government to to fail. In subsequent interviews, he said that his plan all along was to make Mario Draghi prime minister, but I think that's a little bit spurious. Um, Giuseppe Conte was already at the head of a slightly strange coalition. <laughs> um, and uh, so... You know, that this is one of the features of Italian politics, that there is always that question about how long any given coalition will last for, because, you know, the political scene is very fractious. And the main parties in that coalition government, the, the centre-left Democratic Party and the populist five-star movement, they are still in the government now, led by Draghi, isn't that right? Draghi's majority is even larger, and it brings together an even stranger coalition, I suppose. So it includes the traditional centre-left and centre-right forces, as well as the far-right Lega, 
and the formerly anti-establishment Five Star Movement. And they've also brought in a lot of technocrat figures. Mario Draghi, of course, himself is a technocrat, although quite a political one. And they've also brought in various ministers um, who aren't politicians, but have been brought in who are academics or experts in different senses. So it's quite a strange coalition. Um, It brings together former enemies and it's almost a technocratic populist coalition. So really something very new. And what are the biggest challenges then this new government and Mario Draghi faces as its leader and prime minister? They have a number of difficult questions to face. One, of course, is the pandemic, which is facing everybody. The balance sheet of Italy, of course, it's Italy has been one of the harder hit economies by the coronavirus pandemic. Um, the effect has been uneven with particularly harsh impacts on things like small businesses and face to face businesses. And Italy was particularly vulnerable also because, you know, it's already struggling with a big debt burden. And it's seen as kind of the, one of the weaker eurozone economies. So part of the rationale for the EU's recovery plan was really to make sure that Italy didn't come under pressure, that its borrowing costs didn't start rising. Um, Mario Draghi's task is to navigate the pandemic, try and um, turn the economy around. But he also has an enormous amount of money to spend, um, over $200 billion in EU recovery funds. And the idea is that this money should go to things like digital and green reforms um, that will make the economy fit for the future um, and, and, and introduce growth in the future. However, there is a lot of long term issues in the Italian economy that, you know, it's there's always great hopes placed in these technocrat figures when they take over new governments. A lot of people before Mario Draghi have come in saying, I'm going to put in, you know, I'm going to pass lots of reforms with similar kinds of intentions, also similar reputations as people of gravitas with a big reputation and so on. Um, And, you know, there are just long term, very difficult issues to confront. One of the problems isn't actually the passing of reforms, but the implementation of them. Um, There's a lot of lawmaking that goes on that isn't followed through on. There's a lot of rapid, you know, governmental change, uh, political priorities move on um, and things aren't followed through on. There's also some underlying sort of facts like an aging population that makes it difficult to grow. Um, So there's a lot of, you know, just fundamental difficult things. Um, So I'm always a little bit wary when there's so much hope placed in one figure as though one man was enough to change everything. There are some things on his side, though. So unlike technocrats of the past, Mario Draghi, like I said, has lots of money to spend uh, to make his, um, to, to his, to, to kind of back up what he wants to do. Um, he also has an enormous coalition um, of many different forces. So it seems, you know, if if one or two of them become dissatisfied, potentially he has more chance of keeping it going. He only has a short window to govern, though, because Italian elections are due before long. Not alone, Naomi, is he not the first, you know, technocrat appointed to head an Italian government. As you pointed out recently in your, your weekly Europe letter in the Irish Times, he's not even the first uh, Super Mario appointed um, to that role. There was previously um, former European Commissioner Mario Monti and very high, very high hopes at that time as well that he would be the man to lead Italy to the kind of reforms that people think are needed. And, and ultimately, he didn't succeed. So do you think actually people are investing too much you know, hope in Draghi or not? I think that the change that has to take place is more fundamental and goes beyond just one person. Um, but, you know, Mario Draghi does have a lot going for him, I suppose. Um, Monty came in at a time when austerity was the watchword, whereas now we're living in expansionist times. And one of the difficulties that Italy has had with growing is that it's been um, 
It's been cutting its deficit for the last 20 years. And it's in order to try and pay back um, loans that were taken out at high interest rates in previous decades. So it's wearing this big, like heavy backpack of debt. And the expansionist times that we live in hold the promise of actually being able to change policy. There's just been a sea change in the approach to economies rather than wanting to cut. It's it's all about spending now. So that is that is like a key difference. But like I say, there are the underlying issues can't necessarily be transformed uh, by a single man. And also, you know, the the reason why Mario Draghi is in there is because politics has failed. He wasn't elected. He wasn't um, he didn't take part in the election at all. So he, he doesn't have an electoral mandate for what he's going to do. So once again, what we have is Italian politics has reached for a non-political figure or someone from outside of politics to overcome its divisions rather than, I suppose, the way democracy is supposed to work with elections, electing representatives who so then go on to form a government um, and appoint a prime minister through the normal route. Um, so the I suppose it's always sort of presented as an emergency and a contingency that someone special will come in and like follow through on all these reforms uh, but the underlying it the underlying issues i suppose haven't been addressed and i guess one of the things draghi has going from naomi and you alluded to there already is this extraordinary extraordinarily wide coalition of parties that have rode in behind him including the the, the right-wing league party led by matteo salvini um was it a surprise that salvini you know um actually uh, backed draghi for the role it's very strange to have the league in this coalition, as well as the Five Star Movement. I mean, the League has flirted with um, wanting to ditch the euro. Um, it's quite a Eurosceptic party. At times, they want to ditch the euro outright. At times, they make other suggestions, like we should introduce a parallel currency. Um, it kind of depends on the popular mood at the time and what seems feasible. Brexit kind of suppressed or or caused a lot of Eurosceptic actors to rein in their rhetoric because, it, you know, I suppose... Those simple slogan kind of solutions didn't seem as simple as they did in the past. Um, But yeah, it is strange to have a figure like that supporting this technocrat, you know, who's quintessentially pro-European, whose aim is to enact a reform program, which is very much going to be overseen by the European Commission. Italy has to put forward a plan of how it's going to spend all of this money and that has to be okayed by the European Commission. So very the the, the policies have to be in line between Brussels and Italy, I suppose. Um, so it's strange to have them. It's also strange to have the Five Star Movement. The Five Star Movement started off essentially as a kind of a direct democracy movement. Uh, it was quite interesting. It was fronted by a comedian called Beppe Grillo and he argued that we need to change democracy to reflect the kind of technology that we have and brought in things like making policy through online votes of party members, things like that. It was quite an interesting movement, but really the whole, I suppose, the motivating idea behind it was bringing people and party members into policymaking decisions. Um, So then to have the Five Star Movement at this point supporting a technocrat government, which is kind of the opposite of direct democracy is just very strange. Um, And it does make the Five Star Movement somewhat difficult to define. Although I think what unites all of the politicians that have chosen to support this is a sense that they do want to do best by the country. There's a feeling that they, they want good governance to lead the country out of a crisis and to build a better future for Italy. That's the sort of uniting factor behind all of them. 
the big question is how long is this good feeling going to last you can already see there's a risk of people's mood turning of coalition partners becoming unhappy of this sequence of events coming to be seen differently, of an imposition of an, you know, an undemocratic technocratic government, it's quite easy for people's perceptions to change over time. Um, so it's possible that Mario Draghi will only have a short honeymoon period to try and make change. And ultimately, this change is going to be long term. If there is improvement, it might not be something that happens immediately. And he acknowledged in his in his speech to the Senate that there are going to be difficult decisions when it comes to, um, you know, how to respond to the economic crisis. They're going to try to protect workers. But he said that not all professions or not all jobs should be protected equally, that some, you know, some uh, positions, the economy has changed and some positions may be obsolete, I suppose, is what he was trying to say. Um, And that, you know, they needed to make decisions for in the interests of their grandchildren and not just think of the, I suppose, narrow personal interests of the current generation. And so that does entail, you know, difficult decisions. And we will have to see how public opinion reacts to any difficult decisions that need to be taken in the short term. Does it seem, though, on some level, Naomi, that Italy, out of all this crisis, has kind of taken a turn back towards the EU and away from from Euroscepticism, if you like, and you know, the rise of Salvini and the, and the League Party as a Eurosceptic party was probably a manifestation of that. Italy is really interesting because th- the nature of its Euroscepticism um, is often a sort of a disappointment that there isn't more Europe, that there isn't more help from the EU, uh, that Italy has been somehow left behind. Um, so there is a, quite, a really strong uh, strain of, I suppose, um, pro-European feeling in Italy. And a lot of the hopes in Brussels that are placed now on Mario Draghi, remember back to when Italy used to be a big player around the table in Brussels. It's a big country. It's one of the founding members of the EU. And over the years, you know, Italian leaders have played really significant roles in building the EU to what it is today. And there's a kind of wistful hope that Italy could resume that role, that with a, a figure of the stature of Draghi, you know, it could have the influence to be a counterbalancing force to the power of France and Germany and that Draghi could be a figure that that provides that because he he has very, very strong links with other European, uh, European leaders. He's very well founded politically in Rome because he's a former head of the Treasury Department um, in the Italian government, which it deals with all the different ministries. So he has a really granular knowledge of like who the civil servants, the key civil servants are, and, and he, you know, he knows very well the machinery of government in Italy. Um, but as well as that, he has this European profile where he would have a long and good relationship with uh, German ch- Chancellor Angela Merkel, for example. He'd know lots of top leaders, prime ministers and so on, because he would have worked with them over the years. So there is that potential for Italy to kind of resume its clout, because for many years it has been punching under its weight in Brussels. And is that point reinforced, Naomi, by by the the exit of Britain from the EU? If you like, that it is it now even more important than ever that you have a strong performing Italy and Italy that's committed to the European project there as a as a counterweight, if you like, to the kind of Franco-German engine of the EU. Yeah, so certainly the departure of Britain raised questions about the balance of powers in Europe and smaller countries, Ireland among them, were looking to see what new configurations of power, what new alliances could there could there be built in the EU to make sure that the project isn't overly dominated by French and German domestic politics and domestic interests. 
Um, and certainly the, you know, the potential of Italy becoming a stronger force is is viewed as welcome um, in that sense. Having said that, you know, Italian priorities are sometimes, you know, they, they wouldn't necessarily be the same as the priorities of the northern countries. Sometimes Ireland has kind of toyed with being a member of this Hansa League, which, you know, includes the Netherlands and um, some Scandinavian countries. And they're much more, I suppose, of a frugal bent than Italy. They're more concerned about spending, whereas Italy tends to be um, more to, towards... Um, sharing the burden of financial difficulty across Europe in order to emerge stronger as a as a single market. Um, so, you know, definitely it is seen as a welcome development. Now, whether or not it would be directly beneficial to the interests of Ireland, I'm not sure, particularly on things like taxation. Um, I, I, you know, Italian politics is a world away from what the view is in Ireland on that. Naomi, thank you. Now, the southern US state of Texas is slowly recovering from the devastating winter storm that hit last week, leaving as many as 80 dead. The storm also temporarily left millions without power. But those who managed to keep the lights and heat on at home may not have been as lucky as it seems, because some of them are now being charged thousands of dollars in electricity bills, an unforeseen consequence of the state's highly deregulated and competitive energy market. Gritty, one of the electricity retailers, finds itself at the centre of a $1 billion lawsuit, accused of price gouging during a time of crisis. Our producer, Suzanne Brennan, spoke to Kyra Buckley, energy reporter with Houston Public Media, to find out more. So during the storm, about half of the Houston Public Media newsroom lost power. And since we're all working from home because of the pandemic, it had a pretty big impact. Uh, Myself, I lost power for about 35 hours total. Amazingly, thanks to technology, battery power and the cell network, I was still able to help broadcast the latest news live from my apartment with no power, although I was uh, using candles for light. Hi, I'm Kyra Buckley, and I'm the energy reporter for Houston Public Media. Really, Texas was just not prepared for this type of weather, and historically, it's pretty unusual. More than 4 million people across the state lost power, some for multiple days. And those power outages, uh, they in turn, they impacted water treatment facilities. And millions across the state went days, either without water or some with just low water pressure. And that also triggered a boil water notice, which was pretty upsetting if you were also one of the people with no power. As the storm uh, was unfolding, people turned to generators or barbecues and outdoor grills to stay warm. And here in the Houston area, we saw hundreds of cases of carbon monoxide poisoning and a few deaths. Overall, the storm and its aftermath has claimed more than two dozen lives. This is gut-wrenching. A family in Conroe is mourning the loss of their 11-year-old son. The family says he was found dead after a cold night in their mobile home that had lost power. Annie Ruiz has the story.
You know, the big issue with the storm was really the power outages and basically the failure of the state's power grid. So Texas has an extremely confusing electricity system. Ninety percent of the state has its own power grid and it's not connected to the rest of the country. And then on top of that, part of the electricity market is deregulated. And that kind of encourages power generators to just keep electricity supply. Um, Most to just match demand. So Texas tends to have less reserve power than other U.S. states. All right, we're moving on from the Texas power outage to the Texas power outrage. Boy, wholesale prices for electricity in Texas got really So now, a week after the storm, we're learning more about how some people are getting hit with extremely high electricity bills, even if they were without power for part of the storm. In just three days, this family of four racked up $17,000 in electricity bills. Who in their right mind can afford that? This goes back to how confusing the electricity market is. Consumers, you know, just regular folks, homeowners, renters, uh, they're going to buy their power from a retail provider. And some critics say that that provider is really just a middleman because the provider doesn't actually generate electricity. They, in turn, buy that electricity on the market. Uh, When a consumer goes to buy an electricity plan, they can choose a fixed or a variable rate plan. Most people in Texas choose a fixed rate plan. But some are on that variable rate plan, and that is based partly on the wholesale price of electricity. That price shot way up last week. So that's why some people are seeing huge bills, even if they only had power for like a couple of hours during the storm. One of those electricity customers that says she got charged those high rates is Lisa Corey. She's now seeking a class action $1 billion lawsuit against her retail electricity provider. Uh, That's a company called Gritty. She's alleging price gouging. She says Gritty charged her more than $9,000 the week of the storm. The normal consumer would never dream of having a light bill being $9,000 or $5,000 for that matter, or, you know, 2000 This goes back um, so. to, again, Texas has a really confusing system. That wholesale price for electricity is set by the state's grid manager, ERCOT, but ERCOT is overseen by the Texas legislature and the Public Utilities Commission, and the Public Utility Commission board is appointed by the governor. So during the storm, the Public Utilities Commission told ERCOT to raise the price of electricity to its cap, and that cap is $9 per kilowatt hour. So this was supposed to reflect the scarcity of the electricity supply, especially as demand was hitting record levels. Um, But when that wholesale price went up, it impacted Gritty's 29,000 customers in the state. You know, I thought my bill was like $1,200 until like the next day I refreshed and it didn't go from 12 to 13 to 14. It went from 12 to 3,000. So it wasn't something that, you know, I was aware that was happening until it was too late. And, you know, they probably chose gritty because oftentimes that wholesale price is really low. So normally their bills are probably lower than most average customers. Um, But now they're facing those really high bills. And that's after living through a major crisis, a major crisis that hit 
during a pandemic. And, you know, as sad and upsetting as it is, they might actually not have much of a case. Gritty advertises that they charge wholesale prices and that the cap is $9 a kilowatt hour, even though the price rarely goes that high. But this was that rare time. However, if the case does move forward and Lisa Corey wins, it could potentially upend the Texas electricity market if companies can no longer pass on high wholesale prices to customers. Also, if she wins, since she's seeking a class action case, it could mean other affected gritty customers could get some financial relief. Texas Governor Greg Abbott about to provide an update on the state's response to the historic winter storm last week. We're going to join him live right now, in fact. As far as the state legislature goes, they're starting to hold hearings this week on why the power outages were so widespread, why power generators were just not prepared, and why retailers passed on these high costs to customers. It is outrageous for residents to be saddled with skyrocketing power bills. The state is already investigating multiple electric providers about these spikes. One of the proposals would essentially mandate that power companies upgrade so they're ready for winter weather and that would help somewhat stabilize the whole system. However, Republicans control the state legislature and often oppose regulation and intervention in the market. And also, while last week's storm was pretty bad, Texas has seen cold temperatures and widespread power outages before, in fact, back in 2011. And after that storm, lawmakers failed to make any meaningful changes to the state's electricity system. No words, no words can fix what happened or ease the pain that you have endured. But I assure you of this, this legislative session will not end until we fix these problems. And we will ensure that the tragic events of the past week are never repeated. Your safety is my top concern. That report was by producer Suzanne Brennan. That's all for this week. Thanks to Suzanne, to Kyra Buckley and to Naomi O'Leary. For more from our foreign correspondents, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.